Hi, everybody. It's John Dickerson. Welcome or welcome back to the Connection Point podcast. At the end of this episode, I'd encourage you to take a moment and check out cp.news on your web browser. Connection Point is a church that is fully online, and you can follow Jesus one day at a time from anywhere in the world with us. Well, I pray this message inspires you and challenges you today to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hello, Connection Point. My name is Pastor Kurt. Hey, I want you to do me a favor, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room, I want you to turn to a neighbor and say, you are a wildly successful human being. Come on, do it. Look him right in the eye. And you're wildly successful for a very legitimate reason. You survived the great snowstorm of 2022. How many survived that storm? You guys, man. I, 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 I'm, I'm, it's a miracle I even got into your state with the, way, the state of the weather here. And I want to tell you, I'm super impressed with you because in California, we are weather wimps. We do not have this sort of weather. I mean, in California, if it gets to like 40 degrees, they shut down the schools and they're like, Todd, Biffy, get indoors, you'll die. I mean, we are just weather wimps. I remember a few years ago, I was working with college students before I came to Bayside and we were gonna take a retreat of a bunch of college students in Tahoe and, and snow was coming and I got all the drivers together and I said, all right, who here knows how to put chains on tires? Does anyone remember chains? Remember chains on tires? Got to get underneath there and everything. And this little girl from Southern California named Stephanie, she raised her hand. Her dad was an investment banker. She's super, super privileged. Never got a, her fingernails dirty in her life. She, she raised her hand up. She goes, I do, Pastor Kurt. I know how to put on chains. I said, Stephanie, you do not know how to put on chains. She goes, sure. I can put chains on my car. I said, all right, you tell all the other drivers. What are the steps to putting chains on your car? She said, number one, pull over. Number two, unroll your window. Number three, hang a $20 bill out the open window. <laughs> That's how Californians think about storms. The passage we're going to study this morning is a passage about a storm. It's about a storm that a family just went through. It's about the fatigue that comes from a storm. It's about the chaos that comes from the storm. And it's about the cabin fever that comes with the storm. How many know what I talk about when I say cabin fever? You've been stuck inside during this storm with the same people. You love them. You, you, you give your life for them. But if one of them leaves another dirty dish on the counter instead of putting it in the dishwasher, you're going to strangle someone. You know, lay hands on them and not in the biblical sense. It's about a family going through all that. It's about Noah's family. We're in Genesis chapter 9. If you're taking notes, I hope you are. Genesis chapter 9. We're going to look a little bit in chapter 6 in the context, and we're going to piece it by piece it. We're going to learn from Noah's family because, and this is the important part, Noah's family will teach us something about our family. Genesis 9, 18 and 19. I want to look at just two verses. I'm getting a lot of amens right down here in the right. Amen. That's when you know you're preaching well. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, stop right there. We, we'd normally just skip over this verse when we're reading through our Bible. That's ah, just a bunch of names. This is really important, actually. The Holy Spirit inspired these verses, and there's a point to them. And the point really gets revealed in the next verse. Look at this. These were the three sons of Noah 
And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. What the Bible's trying to teach us is them is us. We, we, we're all them. In fact, this is the entire point of the book of Genesis. And you've got to get this into your head straight when you're reading through Genesis. There's all sorts of discussions that happen when people look at Genesis. They First of all, they want to talk about the Garden of Eve, Adam and Eve, and the, and, and the Garden and dinosaurs and all that sort of stuff. And, that was, and that's important. Have those discussions. Read those books. Get your opinion on that all stuff. But that's not the point of the book of Genesis. The point of the book of Genesis, here's our context, and you've got to get this. The point of Genesis is this. Families are flawed. Families are dysfunctional. You want to get encouraged about the problems in your family? Start reading about the families in Genesis. From Adam and Eve all the way to Joseph in chapter 50, it is a bunch of serious dysfunction. And why? Why does God start his whole Bible with story after story of jealousy and hatred and even violence in families? Because he wants us to actually learn the lessons so we don't have to go through the dysfunction they went through. Or if we have experienced some harm, some hurt, and some dysfunction in our family, we can know how to recover and what God does to build great families. See, the problem with Noah is we, we, we only tell a little bit of the story. We tell the dramatic part. Every time you tell the story of Noah, it starts with him. He hears from God. He builds a boat. He gets his family on the boat. He gets the animals on the boat. They go out in the storm. They're the only ones that live. The storm lasts and lasts and lasts. Finally, he sends off a bird. The bird comes back with an olive branch. It's a happy ending. Oh, everyone walks away and, and lives happily forevermore. That's not how the story ends. The Bible's too awesome and too awkward and too honest to let it end there. What happens later is they crash land on the side of the mountain. Noah gets out, and his family's a mess. He grows a vineyard. He drinks too much. And his three sons, those three sons we just heard about, they do not get along. See, here's the context, and you got to get this straight. Um, the point of Genesis is that families are flawed. And the thing about Noah is this. He maintained his faith in chaos. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that he had the favor of God. So Noah has the favor of God. God's looking at him going, you're doing it right. And then in the, uh, chapter 6, verse 22, it also says that Noah's family survived the storm. So check this out. God's, uh, Noah's got God's approval, and Noah's obedient. And here it is, chapter 9, Noah also battled family dysfunction. You can have God's favor... You can be completely obedient, do everything right, and still have problems in your family. I'm going to say it, and I'll probably never get invited back again, but I'm going to say it. I'm just going to be honest with you folks. I'm going to say it out loud. Not every kid is as easy to raise as other kids. Okay, I got a couple honest people right over in this section. I might have felt one amen come through the online right there. Not every kid is as easy to raise as other kids. Amen. So you can have God's favor and you can do everything right and still have dysfunction and problems in your family. What do you do about the problems and dysfunction? We're going to talk about three lessons. Um, and before we do that, I just want to ask this question for the whole series, not just this weekend. Why go into this? 
Why, why master this material? Why give yourself over to saying, God, what would you speak to me and my family? My family is a crazy family. There's no hope for us. You might be in that place. Or you might be going, there's no wrong with us. We're perfectly fine, da, 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 da. Why would you open your heart up and say, God, every single weekend, teach me and grow me and make me a bigger and better family? Because here's the thing. Sometimes the biggest test is not surviving a flood. It's surviving each other. Your problem's not COVID. Your problem's your kids and your cousins and your mom and your dad. It's surviving after the storm, rebuilding a great future for every family, especially in the fatigue of a storm, especially in the aftermath of a flood. There's three simple lessons. It's not going to be hard to get these lessons. It will be more challenging to apply them. There'll be reminders for most people. If you're still with me, give me another amen. Here it is. Number one, write it down. Lean into God's promises. Oftentimes people say to me, Kurt, I've been going to church for a lot of years. I still am trying to get my head around what the Bible actually teaches, especially in the Old Testament, man. In the Old Testament, it seems like everyone's got three different names and God's changing Abram's name to Abraham and all this crazy stuff happens and a lot of stuff happens in that Old Testament that I don't even know why God did that or what he's doing or why it got recorded. It can be really confusing. I'll give you a simple way to understand the entire Bible and the second you understand this framework, you'll start getting exactly what the Bible's teaching and more than that, You'll get who God is and what his agenda is and what his plan for your life specifically, where that falls in God's agenda. And it's simply this. You have to understand that God is a promise-keeping God. And the more you understand what promises he made and what the implications of those promises are, the more you'll understand who he is and what his agenda is and what his plan for you is. Your plan and God's promises are married. So the more you understand the promises of God, the more you understand his plan. Let's just think about this. From the very beginning in Genesis, God makes the first promise. He makes it to Adam and Eve. He says, your offspring will, will be the Messiah, and he will come, and he'll crush the head of the serpent. Then he makes a promise a little bit later on that's very famous to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you, and out of you will come the Messiah. And then he makes another promise to King David, for instance. He says, David, your throne, your kingly throne, it will never end. There will always be a king on your throne, and the ultimate king, the that will last forever will come from your line. And then we get to this promise, the promise to Noah. And see, here's why it makes so much sense. And here's why the Bible will start to come together when you get this. Every single promise God makes is the same promise. It's got a different variable to it. It's got a different person to it. It's got a different time to it. But they're all under the same theme. Every promise is the same promise. The promise he makes to Eve and to Abraham and to David is the same promise he makes to Noah. What is that promise? Let's look at it. Uh, Genesis 9, 14 and 15. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in those clouds, I will remember my covenant, which is a big $3 theological word for promise. And the covenant is between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Look at the person next to you. And I want you to evaluate them. Go on, look at them. You can, we're in church. You can look at each other. People come to church. They're like, I'm not here to look at other people. I'm here to learn about loving them. I'm not going to look at them. <laughs> now look at your neighbor. Go ahead and look at them. And discern this. Are they a creature? And are they living? If you know them, touch their pulse. Just find out if they're living. If you don't know them, please do not grab someone's wrist in church you don't know. That is just awkward. 
If you're alive and you're a creature, this promise is for you. The Bible says, what's the promise? Let's look at it. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. What is the promise he makes to Eve? What is the promise he makes to Abraham? Oh, I didn't even talk about Moses. Same promise to Moses. To Moses, he says, I will deliver all the nation from bondage. It's the same promise. I will withhold my wrath and provide redemption. What's redemption? It's a $3 theological word that means God's gonna forgive all your sins and remove all the barriers between you and your heavenly father for all eternity. God is going to spend a season, and the season is called this life, this earth, this time, of withholding his wrath and paying the price for our sins. So that every obstacle between us and the Father would be removed. See, my, my question is, do you think about these things? Do you meditate on these things? Do you see this in your life? Do you see that redemption? Are you leaned into that? What are you thinking about? What are you obsessing about? I was doing a, a little research a couple of months ago on what we leaned into during COVID. And there's a lot of trends that just blew up during COVID. Well, the first trend was, of course, everyone got on Zoom. Did anyone else here get on Zoom? Who has been on a Zoom meeting? Raise your hand. We're going to have inner healing prayer for you afterwards. I hate Zoom. Do you hate Zoom? I hate Zoom. And I, I don't know why I hated it for so long. And then I realized one day after about three meetings, I hate looking at myself so long. You're just right there on the video screen all so long. You're just like, in my mind, in my heart, I still feel like I'm 22, but on the screen, I am my dad. I have become my dad. Well, I'm, I'm a more blotchy skinned version of my dad. I think my nose is growing. It's just no one is supposed to meant staring at themselves that long. That's horrible. And so the next trend that happened is we said, let's get out of Zoom and let's RTO. Have you heard about RTO? Return to office. And companies have to do this very carefully because it turns out the only thing people hate more than Zoom is going back to the office. They hate it. They hate it. In fact, that gets us to our next trend, which is uh, the great resignation. Have you heard about this? Everyone's just quitting their jobs. So apparently the only thing that'll get you back to the office is handing in your resignation letter and saying, take this job, I'm not going to work here anymore. <laughs> Where are you going to work? I don't know. I'm going to live in a van under the bridge down by the river. I don't care. <laughs> which brings up the next huge, giant trend that went on, which is the buying of cryptocurrencies. Now, if you buy and sell cryptocurrencies, I'm not making fun of you. You understand it better than me, but just think about this. So many Americans did this. They were so depressed and so desperate. They said, you know what my future hope is going to be? I'm going to buy invisible money that no one understands that's made in a computer in China and Texas, named after a dog. The Deutsche coin, doggy Joey, I don't even know. Sociologists are now saying that after the Great Resignation... They fear another wave is coming called the great separation. That people having quit their job, thinking the job was their problem, and not getting any happier at all, are going to start looking at their marriage and go, maybe I got to quit that. Which leads me to the last trend, and this is a huge one. Have you heard this? It's called doom scrolling. You may not have heard of it, but you're going to know what it is. Doom scrolling is when you wake up in the morning, and before you get your coffee, before you even go to the bathroom, you grab your phone. And you start looking at the news. You got the news aggregates on there. You got the, the BBC and the CNN and the MSNBC and the Fox News. And you're looking at all of them, seeing which one's more biased than the other one. And you're learning inflation is horrible and unemployment's not coming back. And there's a new variant and there's inflation in the new variant. If you get the new variant, you will inflate. And um, 
He's like, ah, Ukraine, what's going on with Ukraine? I didn't even know Ukraine was a country until I got on this news. And so you think to yourself, I'm going to go over to Instagram because Instagram will make me happier because this news is just horrible. And you go over to Instagram and you're like, wow, more beautiful than me, more skinny than me, more healthy than me, lifts more than me, better skin than me, better cooked than me, better house than me, better car than me, better than me in every single way. Their kids are better than me. Their kids are all rich. Their kids are influencers and they're making money. My kid is struggling through eighth grade. And this is on purpose, you guys. This is on purpose. The algorithms in your phone know that if they gave you good news, you'd go, that's inspiring. You put down your phone, you'd go live. So instead of good news, they feed you doom and comparison. Doom and comparison. So you know that the world is horribly falling apart and there is no hope. And the only person that is not figuring it out is you. And everyone else is living their best life and skipping to the good part and, and, and understanding the assignments. <laughs> oh, there are some people on the, ah, this little girl right over here. She's like, how did he know that? He's too old to know that. Why do I say all that? Just, I just want to encourage you. What if next year... Instead of obsessing over your phone or your job or your marriage, you obsessed over God's promises. There's three types of God's promises. There's a universal promise. This is God saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus, Jesus is a universal promise. I'm, I'm Adam and Eve. I'm going to send a Messiah. It has nothing to do with what you do. Second type of promise is a conditional promise. This is where God says, I'm going to do something in your life to incentivize you to grow up. So God says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And then there's a third type we see in the Bible all the time. And, and this is the type you can't get it confused because you can't tell everyone this is about them. But every once in a while, God will give a personal promise. He'll whisper something in your ear that's about your kids and your marriage and your mom and your dad and your health and your situation. And it's different from everyone else. It's not a promise he's making to anyone else. And I want to tell you, once you start understanding the universal promises of God, you're going to understand that God is in control and there's never an emergency meeting in heaven about your life. And once you start understanding the conditional promises of God, you're going to grow and change. You're going to become a better version of yourself. And once you hold on to the personal promises of God, you're going to learn that your God is trustworthy. And your life's going to get stronger. You know the best way to strengthen your family? You get stronger. When your faith gets stronger, your family gets stronger. Here's the application. To build a great family, discuss God's promises. Do, do, do God's promises around the dinner table. Ask your kids, have you heard from God? Has he whispered anything in your ear? Do you have a longing or desire? What does it mean that God promised these things to Adam and Eve and Moses and Noah? Obsess about the promises of God. Okay, I got to move on. I'm going too much. I like that point too much. Okay, here's, here's the next thing. Before I preach this next point, another uh, indicator I'll probably never get invited back because this next point is PG-13. Uh, it involves alcohol and not enough clothing and an old man. That's a dangerous combination. Uh, I'm just going to be honest because if it's in the Bible, we're going to preach it. Uh, but if, you, if you've got a squirrely kid next to you, uh, check him into the children's ministry next time is all I got to say. Because point number two is, it's point number two is don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Because what happens is Noah gets drunk here. Let's look at the passage. Genesis 9, verses 20 and 21, as we keep reading the story. Noah, a man of the soil, he's a good farmer, proceeded to plant 
a vineyard, not tomatoes, not eggplant. He gets out of that boat and he says, the first thing I'm planting is grapes. I've been stuck in that boat with these kids so long. A little bit of Napa in Noah. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and he lay uncovered inside his tent. So he's halfway to putting on his pajamas and he forgets the second half. Now you're sitting out there right now. Some of you are going, I don't drink. I don't got this problem. This doesn't apply to me. You know, um, psychologists have a term for what's going on right now in COVID stress and it's called numbing. And it's any activity that we use to sedate our feelings so that we don't experience vulnerability. What does that mean? It means we suppress our feelings using a substance or activity instead of leaning into relationship and talking about our problems and building our families and building our relationships. By the way, your family could be your two roommates and three dogs, or your family could be a big, huge, blended family. You could be the great-grandfather, or you could be the youngest one in the family. It, this numbing applies to all of us, and it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be Netflix. It could be shopping. It could be anger. It could be social media. It could be image management. I'm spending so much time worrying about how I look to others. It's a type of numbing and avoiding. All of us have a propensity to use a device or a substance to keep us from dealing with the problems that our family is facing. And exactly what Noah does here. I don't know why he does it. Maybe it's, he's just fatigued. He's just tired. Is anyone else tired? Come on, is anyone else just, you're just tired? Anyone else come home from work and you sit down on the couch at 6.30 p.m. and you think, you know what? I need to take a nap so I can get the energy to rally to go to bed. You know what I'm talking about? He's tired He's stressed, and you know what's tiring him out and stressing him out? It's not the work. It's not the building the ark. It's not the selling of the ark. Here, I'm going to tell you why you're tired. Do you know why you're tired? It's the relationship drama in your life. You see, we're meant to work hard. You're meant to put in a lot of hours. You're tougher than you know. You can get more stuff done than you get. You know what wears you down? When the people you love don't get along. That's what wears you down. Decrease the drama in your life, and you're going to up your energy. Whatever caused that Noah, he ends up getting drunk. He ends up numbing. And it really, really creates a division between two of his sons and one of his sons. To build a great fam family, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find comfort, not in the activities of numbing, but in God's people. By, by the way, what is the most common type of Christian numbing? food. You know, we're, we're not a bunch of drunkards. We're a bunch of tater tots eaters. <laughs> right? Right? One piece of pie is from Jesus. Give me an amen if you like pie. Three pieces, you got a problem. All right? You know, AA works. AA works. And for a lot of years, uh, Scientists and the social sciences didn't understand why AA works. And in fact, some of them even made fun of it because it was, it was started by two novices. They didn't have any idea of any social scientific theory behind addiction. They didn't, there was not neurologists. They didn't understand how addiction works in their mind, but AA works. And finally, some scientists got serious about it and said, let's study this. Let's figure out why it works. Here's why AA works. Many, many people start drinking to lower social inhibition. Being a social person is very stressful. And so you lower it. And some people, their, uh, their genetics, it, it makes it so they have to consume more and more and more to get the same amount of social inhibition lowering. And so they end up getting into the cycle of addiction. And it has 
all sorts of disruptive things in our life it's hard to get rid of. Um, what happens is AA reduces the effect of alcohol in lowering inhibition by providing two substitutes for that. So instead of drinking, you get two other things. You get meetings and sponsors. And what happens is when you go in to a meeting and you connect with like-minded people who are being vulnerable and talking honestly about their problem and working the steps, it lowers your social inhibition and you get human connection. And human connection is what we all crave and need. We all understand this intuitively, that isolation weakens us and that, that the connection, real connection, not just being in a room with people, but being in a room with people that have your back, that love you, accept you, forgive you, that will love you, accept you, and forgive you when they figure out what's wrong with you. When you connect on a deeper level, you become stronger. Think about this. You walk into a middle school cafeteria and there's all sorts of kids in there eating and you see one kid is by themselves. No one wants to sit with that kid. Are you happy for that kid or worried about that kid? Because you know Connection is essential. You go into a nursing home and you find that one of the clients in the nursing home has no family, never gets visited, spends every day alone. Is that client getting healthier and happier or sicker and older? Sicker and older. Because isolation eventually weakens and connection strengthens. Now listen to me clearly, and I'm going to say this, and people that are watching online, you need to know I love the fact that you're joining us online. I love the digital potential of the church. I want the church to explore every way we can do to make the gospel known, the love of God known in our world through digital. But i got to say this honestly. A podcast is not church. Consuming good Christian teaching online isn't being a church member. We need each other. We gotta press in, we gotta connect, we gotta link arms. One of the most beautiful, awesome things you can do, and I'm so proud of your church for doing this, 2,000 people, is be in a small group, get in a living room, open up the Bible, talk with each other, laugh with each other, complain with each other, and learn with each other, because when you connect in a small group, you get stronger, and when you get stronger, your family gets stronger. Don't, don't use those numbing things. I got two amens over here, man. Whoever you are, I'm proud of you. This section, you're disappointing me a little. <laughs> that was some good preaching right there. <laughs> Find comfort in God's people. Get in a small group. And I know not all small groups are great. So, you know, there's two types of small groups, right? Awkward and awesome. You ever been in the awkward one? You got to press through the awkward to get to the awesome. Okay, this brings me to my last point, and then I'm going to release you for lunch. Because uh, I believe in the Bible, and I also believe in lunch. I believe in them both. Um, does anyone here have a relative that was in World War II? They're passing along very fast now, but I have, I have an Uncle George. He's actually my great uncle. He's my mom's uncle. Uncle George uh, ran a construction company that built roads in eastern Washington. He's just a great man. And the last couple of years of his life, he started telling us all of his World War II stories. He never did. He never really talked about it that much. I think he talked more with his kids than me, but he was just great. He was this sort of uncle that just, he always had a Hershey's bar with him, a Hershey's bar. I asked him one time, I said, why do you carry around those Hershey bars? He said, in the Battle of the Bulge, it was winter and we had nothing to eat and we're all starving and planes flew over and they dropped these boxes and we're like, is it ammunition? Is it socks? What is it? And we opened up, it was Hershey bars. He goes, I love Hershey bars. I mean, like on a type 2 diabetes level of love for him. One time we asked him, we said, what did you do in the war? And he said, well, I was a tank driver. He said, but I didn't start off being a tank driver. I started off being a tank mechanic. 
He said, but one of the tank drivers was killed in battle. And they said, now you're a tank driver. He said, I don't know how to drive that tank. And they said, well, you understand it better than anyone else because you're a tank mechanic. And, and so the, the, the day after he became a tank driver, they went into battle. He never trained. None of the taxis didn't know what he's doing. The battle starts raging. They're, they're just going full speed at the, at the Germans. The Germans coming full speed at them in, in Italy and Patton and all that. And, he, and then the first thing right at the beginning of the battle, he just drove the tank right into a trench and he got stuck. Just went right into a ditch. But he got down in that ditch. He couldn't get it out. And, and the Germans couldn't see him. And they went right over the top of him. And then he was behind him, and he started picking off Germans left and right, and he was the hero of the battle. They, they were like, you're the greatest tank driver ever! And he's like, no, I'm dumb and super lucky. <laughs> and he fought all that war, and then he came back, and he started a business, and he raised a family, and, and uh, he was a great uncle. He was a great uncle, and he took care of his two adult sisters when they got into their elder years, and he understand generosity, and he wasn't a... He was, he was a man who had been damaged by that war. He was a man that had been hurt by that war. But he wasn't a man who was defined by the bad in that war. I think he was tougher than me. Not, not, not the bad kind of tough. You know, we all know some people, they don't open up and they don't talk and they don't connect and they're macho and all that. So I'm not talking about the bad kind. I'm talking about the kind where you go through tough things and you keep going. I'm talking about the kind of toughness where, where, where it gets really hard, but you don't quit. Or when you fall down, you get back up and then you fall down again and you get back up again. The kind of toughness that goes, I'm going to finish the race. The kind of toughness says, I'm resilience. The kind of toughness that says, I'm going to laugh even when hard things happen and I'm going to love even when people are not very lovable. I, I think there was something in his generation we've lost in mine. And you know what it is? It's, it's right here in this passage. The point, the third point is this. Give honor as a gift. My Uncle George understood honor. He understood it politically. He understood it in family. When he said thank you for something, he meant thank you. He wasn't trying to manipulate or position himself he didn't have any followers we're so funny we talk about our followers which means someone else has added us to a list on their phone they're not following us he was a good father and a good man who went through hard things and never gave up I think if we found what they had that gift of honor look what it says here um, we're at verse 22 now. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father, Noah, naked, and he told his two brothers outside. Now, the temptation is to look at this passage, and a lot of people do this, and all they focus on the fact that Noah got drunk. But I tell you, that's not the biggest sin in the passage. This is the biggest sin. Here the son walks in. He sees his dad in failure. He sees his dad in a vulnerable situation, and he thinks the best way to handle it is go out and tell the family what a miserable failure his father is. He walks out there, he tells his two brothers, that guy that made us build that boat, that guy that was always giving us orders, that guy that was telling us when to get on the boat and when to get off the boat, that guy that, that he's all interested in God and praying to God and God's his favorite thing, not us. That guy, you gotta look at him right now. What a loser he is. Doesn't have a stitch of clothes on. He's over-consumed. He's laying in his own filth in there. Man, I'm telling you what, man. Our father, he, you think he's a good guy. You think he's a great leader. You guys all look up to him. Go look at his tent right now. The smell of the sin of dishonor. 
It's destructive, sad, and so common in our world. How people will speak about each other online. A hundred years from now, they're going to look back at our time and say, well, they had such a blindness to how mean they were. Listen to me, friend. I don't know who needs to hear this, but no one's changing their vote by what you say on Facebook. Then you get to this part. Look at how beautiful this is. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and they laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Kill your little passage. We hardly ever preach on it. Why did they do that? Why did they walk in backwards? Put that cover on him in such an awkward way. Well, there's two reasons for it. The first reason is just really simple. You can't overthink this stuff in the Bible. The first reason is no one wants to see their own father naked. No one wants to see that. No one wants to see that. Not when he's young and certainly not when he's old. Right? And the second reason is they gave the gift of honor. Noah didn't earn it. Noah didn't deserve it. The first son was right. He was in sin. But they said, the position is important. His history is important. Our family is important. And so for our family, we're going to honor him when he doesn't deserve honor. The funny thing about honor is that we think that we only give honor when people act honorably, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're to honor our mothers and fathers, and it says nothing about whether our mothers and fathers act honorably. Many in this room, many listening to online, have had unhonorable moms and dads, and yet the Bible still teaches you that if you honor the unhonorable, things will go well with you. It's the only commandment that has a benefit attached to it right in the commandments there. When I give the gift of honor, I increase honor in my life. I build honor in my life. You see, we think that, that we have to solve our problems and then we'll get some joy. We have to solve our problems, then we'll get some peace. We have to solve our problems, then we'll become unified. And that's not how problem solving works. To solve a problem, you take the joy God has given you, and you bring it into the problem, and you take the unity God asks of you, and you bring it into the problem. You take the fun, you take the grace, you take the forgiveness, you take the, the eternal destiny, the purpose, the intimacy of God. You take the fact that God loves you and is committed to you, and you bring that into the problem. And from that place of joy, you start bringing the family together. You start healing the wounds. You don't wait till they're healed to have joy. It's the same with honor. You give it to create it. I don't know if you've ever had a neighbor mad at you. Anyone here ever had a neighbor mad at them? I hope it never happens to you. But when my, my wife and I rented our first house that we lived together with our little young son, my neighbor was so mad at me. So we, uh, we had this old tree in the backyard and it grew into her backyard. And it grew all around the power lines between our two yards. And whenever there was a storm, it would knock her power out, but not knock my power out. 
And so she would complain and I would call up the power company and they would try to cut the limbs around, but it never seemed to solve it. And I called my landlady up and she was all overwhelmed because her husband was the one who had bought the, the property and he had just passed away and she didn't know how to manage them. And she was all frustrated and I was frustrated and my neighbor was really, really frustrated. And one winter we had this uh, eight days of storms. I mean, horrible storms. I mean, not horrible Indiana, horrible California, but you get the picture. And, and that tree blew and blew in three different times her power went out. One night her power went out and I got up the next morning and I'm sitting there reading my Bible and I got my journal and I got my coffee and my office then had a big huge picture window where I could see out on the front yard and I'm sitting there having this great time with God. I'm reading this passage that Peter wrote and all of a sudden she comes charging across my storm wet and all leaves all over her yard. She's just storming and she's wearing that thing ladies that keeps all your curlers in your head. During the, I don't even know what that's called and she's got a moo moo on. Do you know what a moo moo is? You know, if you don't know what a moo moo is, it's like it's like a tent and a dress had a baby and um, a big baby and. Um, She's wearing this moo-moo, and she's got the fuzzy slippers, right? And she's marching across the front yard. She starts pounding on my door, and I open it. And man, she starts giving it to me. And she has been a sailor at some point in her background. Because she is talking sailor language, man. There's a lot of hard consonants. And she's just, she's going at it. And I got offended. I got upset. I started going, I started going, man, I don't deserve this. And I've worked hard for you. And I've tried to serve you. And I've been a good neighbor. And I don't deserve this. It's not my fault. It's not even my house. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of me taking offense, I heard this still small voice. He said, what were you just reading in there? Are you a Christian in there only? Or does that work here at the front door too? Weren't you just reading something about gentleness and respect? Then I heard God just drop this thought in my heart. He said, um, honor her. Give her some honor. She took a breath, and I, I found my moment. I looked right at her and said, man, can I just say one thing? I said, you've been a really great neighbor to us. And I am so sorry I haven't got this solved for you. Will you please forgive me? She immediately just went, oh. She said, oh, this isn't your fault. I don't know why I'm so mad at you. And she goes, you've been a great neighbor, too. I love you guys, and I love your little boy. And i like, you've been a great neighbor. No, you're a great neighbor. No, you are, you are, you are. And then later that afternoon, she brought me a plate of cookies. Are you teaching, Pastor Kurt, that if I give the gift of honor, I'm going to get more cookies in my life? That is absolutely what I'm teaching. That is my doctrine. I'm sticking to it. Because when you give the gift of honor, especially when it's not deserved, you create benefit. Listen to me, ma'am. I want you to look your husband in the eye once a day and give him honor. Listen to me, sir. I want you to look at your wife in the eye and lift her up, edify her, build her up. You roommates, you do the same thing. You siblings, oh, you want to know if Jesus is real? The sibling that pushes your button the most, vacuum their room today. You'll see God, and you'll probably get a video game from your mom. Your dad will be fainted on the couch. 
You know which relationship I'm talking about. There's all sorts of ages and stages in here, and you're, you're, your family looks this way or that way. And you, you, you translate for yourself. You know that person that pushes your button the most. You go honor them. You love them. You let them know that you accept them the way Christ accepted you. You forgive them the way Christ forgave you, and you believe in them, and you invest honor in them, and you watch as you build favor with God and benefit by just giving the gift of honor. Why? Because Jesus gave you the gift of honor when you didn't deserve it. While you were still a sinner, he came to earth. He taught truth to our chaos. He laid hands on our leprosy. He died on a cross, and when he said, it is finished, he was referring to your pride and your lust and your greed. And when he conquered death, he fulfilled the promise of God that there would be no obstacle between you and your heavenly Father for all eternity. That's how Jesus honored you. Can I pray for you? Father, I pray for every family in this room, Lord. Whether it be just two roommates or multiple generations with great-grandparents and uncles and cousins, God, I pray in the name of Jesus, that you would help them grow in your promises this year. Choose relationship over any other substance or material. And Father, that they would give the gift of honor and become more and more honorable themselves. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that and you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P.news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us and please join me again next week for the Connection Point Podcast.